Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. Hello. Welcome to a very, very special and final episode of Seriously. This is the Christmas special that we promised you last week when we announced that Seriously is coming to its end after three and a half years. And yeah, boy, have we got a treat for you today. Yeah, we do. We couldn't bear the idea of not doing any kind of Christmas content at all in 2018. So we've decided to bring forward our planned festive special So today you're going to be hearing various friends of the show, many of them familiar to you from previous episodes, all discussing the incredible 2006 film, The Holiday. Yes, this is a film directed by everyone's favourite auteur, Nancy Myers, the auteur of the, uh, I don't know, the privileged American white lady lead. (laughs) Um, And it stars Cameron Diaz, Kate Winslet... Jude Law and Jack Black in not a love quadrangle, but two love pairs. And it's kind of, for me, become in recent years, the new love actually in that, I mean, in 2006, this film actually passed me by, which I know is not the case for a majority of audiences. But in the last few years, it's just become such a classic to both rewatch and kind of debate the merits Mm. or lack of merits thereof. It's kind of like the best worst Christmas film for a lot of people. I wrote a piece about the holiday this time last year about all the kind of plot inconsistencies and we'll link to that in the show notes and just all the kind of many absurdities this film has. And when we decided to do this special, we kind of thought it would be a weird one because we thought a lot of people would be kind of saying, oh, I hate this movie, but I've seen it so many times. And yet pretty much everyone we spoke to has a very serious underlying love for the holiday even with all its flaws so this is actually a celebration of the holiday isn't it it absolutely is yeah I feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside at the fact that everyone we spoke to just went no I really really love this film and I'm not ashamed about it yeah so we really hope you enjoy this it's our swan song our final episode merry christmas yeah merry christmas So we're joined by Simran Hans, film critic at The Observer, to talk about The Holiday. Simran, you know, you're a critic, so I'd be averse if I didn't ask you. The Holiday. Good film? Bad film? Listen, The Holiday is probably my favourite Christmas film. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think it's good. For a long time, I've been saying, I don't really think this is a good film, um, but I love it and kind of treating it like a guilty pleasure. Mm. And actually, the more I watch it, which, you know, is every year since it came out in 2006 <laughs> and then probably a little bit more, um, you know, I I can't seriously say that I don't think this works. I mean, it's an insane movie. It's crazy. It makes no sense. <laughs> but I think it's it's really fun. And yeah, I'm going to say I think it's good. Do you think, I mean, I guess the holiday it achieves what it's set out to achieve, right? I mean, the fact that we're all still watching it at Christmas, however many years later, shows that. I just think that there is a line in the film that Kate Winslet's character, Iris, says, where she sort of sets up the thesis of the film. And she says, I like corny. I'm looking for corny in my life. That mm. is the whole movie. Mm, like, yeah. That defends the whole film. The critique is built into the movie. And yeah, I, I love it. I think it's ridiculous. That's so true, actually. And I mean, for me, I feel like I kind of have a love-hate relationship with this movie where there's lots of bits I love and other bits that kind of make me want to scream. <laughs> Please tell me about the bits that make you want to scream. I mean, Jude Law's entire character kind of <laughs> makes oh, me yes. want to scream in this movie. And there are like kind of fundamental plot holes. And I think later in the show, we're going to talk a bit more about the timeline, which is just very messy. It's bonkers. Um and so there are things like that where I'm like, give us give us some consistency. <laughs> um, but despite all of that, it is just kind of like fundamentally charming. So it wins me over every time. It makes me cry. Really? Which particular bits make you cry? Well, I mean, listen, when <laughs> watching Cameron Diaz like cry for the first time, mm, her yeah. acting in that scene is, I think almost like comical I don't I don't actually think that's good I was really worried about where that sentence was going (laughs) just like no it's just a no but when she is sort of having this big confrontation with um, the Jude Law character Graham in bed and they're kind of talking about how they're going to make this transatlantic relationship work I just think it's actually really sad Mm. Um, and there is a sort of sense of stakes emotional stakes there even though of course it's the rom-com so we know how it's going to end yeah kind of but then anyway there's so much to discuss but it's it's, nothing is resolved at the end of this movie it's kind of like the least happy ending happy ending of all time yeah exactly that's what I think about it because so particularly what we wanted to focus on in this segment was work and the character's professional lives which are really integral to that non-ending ending because we don't get any kind of sense of who's going to move where or how they're going to resolve their jobs or anything. It's just they're all together on New Year's Eve and they dance and that's lovely. That's yeah. it, right? Shall we Shall we start from the beginning? I was going to yeah. end at the end. I was going to ask if you had heard of the Reddit theory. What is the Reddit theory? About this oh movie? my God, that they all die in a car crash and that the ending is just a hallucination. That's the kind of theory I mean, that you see on Reddit. It's close. It's close <laughs> to that. Um, in this Reddit theory that I, I read, apparently someone proposes the idea that both the Cameron Diaz character and the Kate Winslet character are actually dead. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this one, that one theory worked with Ferris Bueller's Day Off and hasn't worked with anything else since they tried to project I'm not it. saying I buy it. I'm just mm. saying it exists. Wow. What? So actually it, it's graham miles and graham's children like gathering together to remember them on new year's eve something they like would that. never have met they would never have met otherwise i'm so confused 
Yeah. Well, anyway, let's talk about work then, because we're all very interested in like jobs and how they function in this movie and like what these characters do. So we'll state all of their jobs. Amanda, the Cameron Diaz character, she has an amazing job. And all of these jobs are incredibly like rom-com movie jobs. peak (laughs) rom-com job. Mm -hmm. Um, She's a film trailer editor. So we have these scenes at the beginning where she like, hello, John Krasinski, by the way. And also (laughs) Catherine Hahn. Yes. And Catherine Hahn are editing a trailer. I think, what's it it called? Is it called like Disobedience or something? It's called Deception. Deception, sorry. (laughs) And it stars James Franco and Lindsay Lohan. Amazing. And the fake movie is so, so so real and committed to yet that we'll get to this when we talk about the timeline yet it's coming out on christmas day which seems very soon in the logic <laughs> of the film for them still to be working on the trailer right yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. very odd then we have iris the kate winslet character she works at the telegraph we specifically are told that it's the telegraph yes there's a lot of kind of telegraph i don't know messaging in the building is it the real building i mean it could have been in 2006. I never went into that Telegraph building, I don't think. I did, but I don't think so, no. Okay. And she, her job specifically is that she's a sort of wedding correspondent, <laughs> a bridal yeah. journalist. For, for a column that I don't think the Telegraph has ever had, but that is equivalent to the kind of, I think it's called Commitments, the famous New York Times column, where they write up people's weddings in sort of heartwarming ways. That mm-hmm. seems to be what she does. Yeah. And then we have Graham, Jude Law, who is a book editor, but doesn't, I mean, at we don't... Penguin, specifically is at it, Penguin. Is it specifically at Penguin, right? <laughs> yeah. This is just so fascinating, isn't it? The only time you see any evidence of his job is, I think, one like 20 second scene where he's sitting, his daughters are asleep in bed next to him and he's like holding a pile of papers and correcting them as if they are a book manuscript. That's <laughs> the entire intrusion of his job. That's how it works, right, Caroline, your experience of the book editing process. Someone just well, lies in bed and kind of flicks through it. I want to say no, but actually my publisher did just literally post me a bundle of pages of my book that <laughs> okay. I now have to correct with a pen. They arrived Fine. this morning. so <laughs> Amazing. Cool. And finally, we have Miles, the Jack Black character, who is a film score editor. A uh, composer, yeah. Yeah, sorry. That's the word film score editor he's a composer and he writes the music for films and we see him kind of composing the music for this very odd looking film that has uh two people in kind of like victorian dress but cycling modern bicycles <laughs> yes. i don't i have no idea what film i actually want to see that film that, of all of the like fake films in this film because also we should say that amanda it, we are led to believe that amanda is so good at editing film trailers that she like thinks about her own life in terms of film trailers because at various points in the film it sort of cuts to a hallucinatory parody of events as if they were a film trailer yeah of all of the fake films I actually want to see the one that Miles is scoring at that moment we're also forgetting key character in the film Arthur of course Arthur played by Eli Wallach and he also has a ridiculous job he's a retired academy award-winning screenwriter (laughs) yes and also louis b mayer's office boy isn't he originally which it just seems an improbable job but i'm sure somebody had it one day so we've got these three very la hollywood jobs and they're obviously all the characters who are 
based in LA and then we've got these two I imagine kind of like English literary jobs of Mm. like telegraph journalist and penguin book editor Um, (laughs) so they're kind of like rooted in the two places and I guess maybe the different kinds of characters lives like we've kind of got these cottagey rurals I don't know quaint English characters and these like glamorous been hobnobbing with all the celebs LA characters and that's kind of the tension of the because I don't know a huge amount about LA and I do know a bit more about like British journalism media it's always struck me very very hard every time I watch this film that there is no way Kate Winslet could live in that lovely cottage in the Cotswolds and commute daily to a probably quite badly paid job in the like register section of the Telegraph, like just yeah. financially that and also is meant to be forty minutes away from London. There's no way. Just, like, no. has anyone ever tried to travel to the Cotswolds? Like, there are about four trains a day to particularly rural places. <laughs> oh man, I don't think it's meant to be in the Cotswolds. We just never no. It, get... it is. It is. N- no, because um... that she finds the 19th century Cotswold barn. Sorry to mansplain the holiday. She Isn't find... it in in Surrey? Yeah, it's meant to be in, oh, Surrey, it's in she, Surrey. She rejects the Cotswold one, uh, and there's right, a picture of this like okay. clearly American street and she's like oh a 19th century Cotswold barn but that looks so crap and it's just like some 1970s building on like a main road and clearly in the middle of the US because it's got like a mailbox outside and like (laughs) road markings that are very American. Um, Yes you're right it's it's meant to be in Surrey but still there's no way you could commute from a remote village like that to a job yeah it just wouldn't work. It just Um, wouldn't work. Um, And it's possible that the LA jobs are equally incompatible like there's I don't know what film trailer editors earn, but it's probably not enough to have like a massive gated mansion. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, actually, because they one thing that I found really unbelievable when I watched this movie is the idea that you would have like the best film trailer editor in the biz. I was like, well, obviously, that's just got to be like a huge structural thing with lots of different companies. And like, you wouldn't be like, I want that guy to edit my Mm. film trailer. Apparently, that is actually how it is. And if you Google like some of these guys, there's big profiles written about them, about how they're like the people that you want to edit your film trailer and how they got so many people to go and see Gravity and like blah and blah or whatever, because they just did the trailers really well. So that is fascinating to me. But that is interesting. On the whole, all of these jobs, I mean, they're very Nancy Myers. I was just going to say that. I think it's consistent with Nancy Myers' filmography. The Nancy um, Myers Cinematic Universe. Uh, yes, exactly, <laughs> as it's formally called. John um, Krasinski is in, a, is in the Cinematic Universe, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the intern, she works at a magazine, like a women's magazine. That's a very rom com job. In my favourite Nancy Myers movie, her masterpiece, Something's Gotta Give, Diane Keaton is a playwright mm-hmm. and she, you know, is like holed up in her cottage in the Hamptons writing this play. I'm trying to remember what the what the parents do in The Parent Trap. I know the dad owns the vineyard, but I can't remember. I what... wanted to say that the mum was in fashion, but am I just thinking of 101 Dalmatians? No, I think she is. I was going to say as She's well, like I've... a designer or something she's, like she's that. She's a designer of some kind yeah but I think fashion is ringing a bell yeah yeah and then um in It's Complicated there's obviously Meryl Streep's Bakery <laughs> um, yeah she's so, kind of like an Ina Garten sort of wannabe isn't she in, in It's Complicated exactly so she she loves these kind of like creative jobs for women that are very traditionally feminine but also um I think 
these roles allow her female protagonists to be incredibly neurotic. And I think all of her movies confront this idea of being a workaholic. Baby Boom as well. Is that the mm. Nancy Myers movie, right? I haven't, I haven't seen it. With Diane Keaton. I'm pretty sure that's, I th- I think that's Nancy is, yeah. Myers. I think she maybe directed and didn't write it. I'd, I'd have to check. But the main character, she sort of is on Wall Street and then she goes and starts making these like homemade apple preserves. (laughs) (laughs) And like she makes makes this business out of like making applesauce. And yeah, so like Nancy Myers is really interested in this idea of like the domestic and of like what sort of traditional women do. And, And they do have these like crazily feminine jobs, but they're just so sort of in their own heads and kind of neurotic that I think... You know, there's something very different about those characters. They're so highly strung. Um, she must be confronting her own kind of idea of of workaholicness. Mm. That's interesting in the Amanda character, particularly, isn't it? Because she maybe conforms most closely to that in this film. That she's extremely highly strung. She's convinced that she she's such a workaholic that she can never have a real relationship with anybody. And the first like proper date she goes on with Graham he's just asking oh look so what do you do for work blah blah blah. and she kind of lies to him and initially says oh you know I'm film editor and then later reveals that actually she is the film trailer editor person and she owns her own business and he's Mm -hmm. like why didn't you say that straight away and she says oh well you know some men are intimidated by the fact that I own my own business and you know I have this great reputation and so on so yeah she's clearly like second guessing herself the whole time. Yeah. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because these Nancy Myers jobs are often, as you say, these really high flying jobs that allow their characters to be workaholics, but they're also simultaneously jobs that allow them to take a lot of time off or like jobs where you don't actually have to see them working very much. So you've got these professed workaholic characters that we never actually see do any work or like in the holiday, to be fair, we do see uh, Amanda editing a film trailer and we do see Iris working at the office in the Telegraph. But it's kind of like introduction to who these characters are and then we move on. And it's not always like that in Nancy Myers movies. Like The Intern, for example, is actually really about dramatizing mm. this character's Office work life, yeah. in a, a lot. But I find that really interesting here because obviously that's what you need for the rom-com. You need, you need that elasticity where they can just like go off and like be on holiday for two weeks. I mean, it's called the holiday. Mm. It's a lot, <laughs> but it's a long, it's a long period of Christmas yeah. holiday that they get and of seemingly indeterminate time. <laughs> when um, when was the last time someone who works at a British national newspaper get two weeks off over Christmas and New Year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess maybe there's just no weddings happening so it's easier for yeah, her particular although that's not true it's obviously a big period for weddings but <laughs> I don't know but yeah I find that quite interesting how we're both encouraged to see these characters as as you say neurotic and workaholic but also we're watching them have a period of really like no no mm. work at all and you know there are some characters Graham I feel in particular who doesn't seem to have any work pressure on him at all like he's both kind of a you know, a senior book editor, but also seems quite like a stay-at-home dad at points because he's looking after his young children most of the time. Not on Christmas Eve, though. Yeah, on Christmas Eve, he's too busy boning Cameron Diaz. <laughs> um, if it is indeed Christmas Eve, it's very hard to tell. It is very hard to tell what, what time it actually is. We should touch on the timeline issues, I think, because, yeah, it's really hard to tell when anything is. It seems like the period between, like, people finishing work for Christmas and actual Christmas Day is very long in this film. But it also, I think at one point we get the impression at least that 
the Friday that Iris is leaving work is like Friday the 22nd of December or something. Like that it's the last Friday before Christmas. That can't be right. It can't be right because then... Too much stuff happens. Cameron Diaz says something like, oh, I'm only here for nine days. And that's like halfway through. So she's obviously been there for quite a few days before that. But then also she, Iris and Miles have their sad fettuccine on Christmas Eve. Like they specifically say... He says, I'm going to make us some Christmas Eve fettuccine. Yeah. And that comes like two thirds of the way through the film. And then the next thing we know, it's like New Year's Day. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So where did Christmas go? Where is Christmas? Actual Christmas Day. And also the other problem I have with the timeline is that Iris meets Arthur on like her first or second day in LA, I want to say. And then it's, it's right before Christmas, we're told. They then respond to the letter from the Screenwriters Guild of America about his big event. And they somehow managed to go from him never having spoken to them about this event to them putting on an event with a full theatre before New Year's. That doesn't work. The timeline of that doesn't work. It's it's quite mad. For me, like one of the things I think is ridiculous about this film, but I I enjoy it because it makes no sense to me, is the, the whole structure of the film. It's two and a half hours long. Yeah, it's what a really kind long film. A rom com has any business being two, two and, and a half hours. hours long. And the whole Arthur subplot, because I mean, and we'll call it a subplot because it's kind of not really to do with any of their romantic arcs. Mm. That is like forty minutes of the film. Like <laughs> yes. it's it's mad. It is um, crazy. I know Nancy Meyer's films are usually quite long, but for for this sort of genre it makes no sense and it's the kind of movie where you it, i mean it's often on ITV too and so you might put it on or you might see it on TV and think like oh yeah the holiday great and you sit down and then 3 hours later you're yeah, still without watching it. it oh my god so yeah. Simran, would you say is it is it more normal for a rom-com to be under 2 hours is that standard? yes yeah. i i would say most rom-coms are sort of at the tighter end, 90 minutes, but probably like 150. Right. Um, that's not scientific. That's just, uh, just from having watched experience. many, yeah. many rom-coms. Because, you know, they're, they're comedies and comedies are shorter. And so why would it, rom-com need to be more than two hours? And shocking to have a rom-com that is two and a half hours and for it to be very unresolved at the end. To go back what we was, to what we were saying earlier partly because of these characters' jobs, which for both of them are very, very based at either ends of the Atlantic. So we've got, you know, the book editing job and the and the telegraph job. Those are like British institutional London-based jobs. as well. London-based, very London-based jobs. Based, yeah. And then we've got these Hollywood jobs in LA. Those characters, we never we never learn like who's relocating where. And, <laughs> and Okay, so- but like here's my theory. It's called the holiday. So it's only interested in the holiday period. It's not interested in like what happens afterwards. But you could make a film called The Holiday about this holiday and then give the audience a sense of like, okay, Kate Winslet's moving to LA. She loved it. She's got more friends out there. She has no holi- friends. In- it's a holiday romance. <laughs> you know, like but sometimes it's not because they're, they're very committed. But like we can tell that this is more than just, wow, I had such a fun two weeks. Sure. But who hasn't had a, a holiday romance or flirtation where at the end of it, you're like, yes, we're definitely going to make and this work. Just, so and then obviously it doesn't. <laughs> so your happy ending at the end of the holiday is that everyone had a good time, but no one's going to see each other again. 
I, I'm not convinced that it's going to work unless someone makes some serious sacrifices. Yeah, who's quitting their jobs? Oh, in both on in both of the couples, someone needs to quit their job and move to a different country for it to work. We, I think, can assume it's probably not going to be Graham just because he has kids, and he mentions grandparents who also look after. Maybe the he's going to abandon his children. So maybe he's know. just going to like abandon his children to his parents and move to LA, but seems unlikely. Also, like he could conceivably move to New York and get a job as a book editor, but not really to LA. Publishing mm. in America is very like East Coast centric, I think. So it's Maybe probably going to have to editor. be Amanda who moves. Mm. Uh, and ditto, like, I don't know whether you can really go from a job at the Telegraph to a job in LA it doesn't seem to really work. So maybe Miles has to become like a BAFTA nominated film composer in London or something. But but do you do you buy that romance between Kate Winslet and Jack Black? No, no. not really. Not at all. I think <laughs> no. he's he's just like they've they've both had traumatic breakups and sort of ongoing slight it's kind of hinted, especially with Iris's character, that her relationship with her boss is Jasper. Kind of, Jasper is kind of emotionally abusive so they've both had like really traumatic breakups and they're just like fundamentally nice to each other and then they're both like right this is love I mean I don't even agree that they're particularly nice to each other but I think we should we probably should save that for the for the love section of the podcast but yeah I I agree that someone's got to relocate where and you know, if we looked at this through a very kind of economically realistic lens, it would seem unlikely for that to be a successful relocation for anyone. But if we know Nancy Meyer's films. Yeah. And also, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm convinced that Graham and Iris, who are brother and sister, by the way, mm-hmm. that they have family money. Yeah. So oh, we yeah, just totally. assume the family money yeah. and then it works. It's right? true. <laughs> it's so true. And, and you know, Economic barriers are not the barriers that exist in Nancy Meyer's films. No, uh, <laughs> they are not. It's a it's a beautiful fantasy where no one has to worry about money. And you know, I I take them at that level. I like that. It's nice to watch a two two and a half hour long film in which no one has any money problems ever. So mm-hmm. I'm on board. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What? 
So now I'm joined by two longtime friends of Seriously, Stephanie Boland, who's web editor at Prospect, and India Bork, who's our editorial assistant and environment writer. Both been on Seriously multiple times before, so you'll recognize their voices. I was going to say the the holiday enthusiasts, but that might be tarring you with a brush that doesn't (laughs) apply, so I'd hate to do that. First, we're going to ask the pair of you whether you think The Holiday is a good film or not. Should I start with you, India? Is this a good film, The Holiday? Ah, yes. Yes, Yes, it is a good film. It makes me happy. Own it. It makes me happy, but I am not sure whether it's entirely good as a, like, moral lesson for society. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nor nor does it have to be, I guess. It doesn't have to be a, a good moral for society, but I'm sure we'll... We'll get into that a bit more mm-hmm. as the podcast goes on. Stephanie? I love that India just goes straight in at the, <laughs> the deep end. <laughs> yeah. Jumps yeah, straight I, off that ledge. I mean, I think it's a good film in that if you assess it against what it's trying to be, which is a fluffy holiday romance film, yes, it's a fantastic example of its genre. So, yeah, sure. We've been very positive about the holiday, actually. When, when, we, when we thought about doing this special, I think both Caroline and I were like, how will it feel to do a special podcast on something that we might be mm. ragging on quite a lot? But actually everyone seems to have acknowledged that, do you know what? I've watched this film a lot of times. I enjoy watching it. So how can I sit here and say it's a bad film? <laughs> and I am very pleased about that because I think it suggests that all of our guests are very in tune with what they actually like and what culture is for as opposed to like measuring things by arbitrary external factors. Totally. And so the the element of the film that we're going to talk about now is love because you can't talk about a rom-com without talking about love, can you? Mm-hmm. That would just be bizarro. I mean the the joy of this kind of I want to say anthology film, though that's a bit of a stretch. It's not quite an anthology film, but the joy of a film like this that has kind of like two A plots is that we get kind of two rom-coms in one and we get two couples in one. And I think everyone has a couple in this film that they're more interested in, I think, than the other couple. Do you guys? I have a third couple, a third I'm, couple. I'm most interested in. Come on then, bring it out. <laughs> so, so the couple that makes the film for me and without which I think the two Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet Jude Law relationships would be deeply irritating is Kate Winslet's relationship with the film with writer. Arthur, is that his the name? Elderly, Arthur, yeah, Arthur, the, the screenwriter, elderly yeah. screenwriter, who is both highly cliched and highly adorable. And <laughs> you know, she befriends him in the street when he's kind of wandering lost, and she's a bit of a lost soul, and he's physically lost and possibly <laughs> losing his mind. And um, you know, they find each other in what he might describe as a, a cute meet. Yes, a meat cute. Indeed. A meat cute, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like I like cute meat because it's kind of cutifying yeah, the phrase. Better, um, yeah, and it's such an interesting plot line, actually, because I said this film has two A plots, but that is really the B plot, isn't it? It's the Arthur-Kate Winslet relationship, and it gets a lot of screen time in this movie. I wouldn't want to like actually assert this as fact without counting, but I would guess that uh, the Arthur-Iris plot gets more time than the iris miles plot does yeah even though the posters etc are all trying to tell us that this is a film about kate winslet hooking up with jude uh with jack black i do kind of wish it was a film about kate winslet hooking up with jude law though not to get all incesty (laughs) on the podcast but that's incestuous in the internal logic of the film we can Um, forget i said that but yeah so what i mean what purpose do we think that that subplot really serves because also this is the one really 
kind of nuanced portrait of a friendship in this film. There aren't that many friendships portrayed in this film apart from this Mm. new one. I guess just because of the inherent structure of the film, like these people are on holiday, they're not hanging out with their usual friends maybe, but the the fact that we spend so much time with this friendship what are they what are they trying to do with that plot it's really interesting because sort of like perhaps bridget jones and a couple of other films but very unlike series like friends all of the four main characters are slightly older than you'd think of as being cast in many sort of big hit rom-coms and they're all on that cusp between kind of sorting their lives out they all already have established careers they've all got an extended serious relationship already behind them this isn't the kind of bloom of first love um what's his name Jude Law's character Graham 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 Graham. Graham. (laughs) Diaz can't say Graham I love it so much um but he's already a widower and so I feel Mm. like Arthur serves the voice of authority from the generation above theirs it's a kind of entrance into mature adulthood type film isn't it rather than a introduction to his what love and romance is so maybe he's the the voice of kind of the successful um, relationship with his wife totally I think he's god you think he's god (laughs) (laughs) India thinks he's god in a kind of in like a Bruce Almighty so I, think the film, I think the saving grace of the film is the fact that it just is mostly in love with Hollywood you've probably talked about this in another section but you know it's all references to the film world of mm-hmm. LA and Hollywood etc and he is the screenwriter he is the scriptwriter, and it's his lines um where he's trying to kind of you know get Kate Winslet's character to rally and he's like you know I always base my female characters on my wife which is very Mm. sweet and it's because she had gumption Mm. and um there's another lovely line he comes out with um you know he's the one who tells her you know you've got to be the leading lady in your own life and so he gives it this whole kind of meta level of this is a very like cliched the other two the other relationships are playing with like archetypes of relationship problems and characters and flaws and then him stepping in as this kind of overlord screenwriter you're like okay this is a this is a simplistic moral story that we should not take too seriously (laughs) in terms of character (laughs) development but so many of them work in an industry that's to do with Mm. writing stories so she's Mm. is she a wedding um yeah iris is a kind of wedding correspondent at the telegraph (laughs) yeah (laughs) how did you get she was a wedding correspondent she's writing a a kind of reader's lives notice in the scene where she's in the office beginning but she kind of works in that you know we've got script writers we've got film music writers and they spend so much time talking about love the two main couples are constantly analyzing their love lives to each other Mm. which is a really funny conceit in it yeah like this and it is funny because he does you're right the Arthur character kind of comes in and offers that divine script like the ultimate script of how relationships function Mm. where he you know like understands the conceits of like the meet cues he understands the kind of like blocking of a traditional love story but you're right that they're all kind of self-analyzing what love should be like even Cameron Diaz with her constant film trailers in her head. Mm. Like they're all self-analyzing all the time. And none of the neither of these relationships, interestingly, for me anyway, hit those classic structural points in relationships because the whole setting of the film is over such a short period. You know, it's not like we get the kind of, you know, they try to compress the like falling in love with the best friend narrative into the into the um Jack Black 
storyline but it doesn't it doesn't quite function in that way and Anna I wanted to ask you about this actually Anna because you have this strong belief don't you that that relationship isn't really there at all well yeah I just don't think it just doesn't work for me I just don't I, mm. they don't have the right amount of chemistry they don't have the right amount of stuff in common they don't for me I'm just like I don't really believe I believe that they might help each other through like a slightly stressful period in their lives but is together. this because you don't fancy Jack Black we just established before we started <laughs> recording that Steph and I do fancy Jack Black <laughs> this film has changed my mind yeah. on him and only, only this oh, rewatching of this film before I did yeah. but just last night yeah, I think he won me over. I'm, I'm getting old eyes. and I'm just like, yeah. oh, he's just very nice, isn't he? <laughs> but is he nice? Here's, here's a question I have for the group. Is mm. Jack Black nice in this film or is he behaving in the exact same way as Kate Winslet's other romantic interest, Iris's other romantic interest, Jasper, the journalist who's, uh, like Jack Black, got another partner, still hangs out with Iris all the time, is kind of intimate and romantic with her, um, mm. and like hides the tries to kind of fudge the the reality of his love life from her and you know kind of says all these kind of like encouraging things to help her gain self-confidence but then I don't know I mean, if, if Jack Black didn't break up with his girlfriend and get with Iris in the end he would be exactly the, sa- be the, be same. the exact same character yeah. but we because Jack Black's not kind of like super handsome we're like oh but he's the nice guy isn't it also the decisiveness he displays towards her though so that he when he breaks up with his girlfriend because he realizes he fancies her he says I'm gonna if you'd like come and spend New Year's Eve in London with her Mm. and he's like yeah I'm 100% in this and Mm. so in that moment it's meant to be oh having the two love interests can go another way it Mm -hmm. can end with you going yeah I'm gonna make Mm. a call and do this that's a good point in defense of Jack Black Um, (laughs) yeah I was gonna say uh, on the other side uh, I think because I think, as we've mentioned before, I I don't find the um, Amanda Graham Cameron Diaz Jude Law relationship particularly high stakes <laughs> at all. Like I just don't believe that they will ever see each other again after this film. But I think that one of the most genuinely heartbreaking moments in the whole film is when Kate Winslet is in a sushi restaurant with Jack Black's character, and he gets a call from his other girlfriend, and he just leaves. He just goes to see her. And yeah, fine, it's subsequently revealed that he did that in order to break up with her or whatever. But he spends a long time there. He very nearly misses the very important thing that they have on Mm. that night. And yeah, she's just sort of like eating alone in a restaurant. And I I think that's really, really sad. And I do think it is a bit, if you wanted to see it as sort of foreshadowing, I think you could. That, you know, even though he does then go, I'm coming to London to be with you he'll probably do that again yeah will he change his mind i mean haven't we all known Mm. that boy who shows that that split second decisiveness and then two weeks later isn't so decided they're the only boys i've ever known (laughs) even in a lower key way though you can imagine if they do somehow manage to concoct a successful transatlantic relationship out of that initial meeting that he is going to be the person who will text her at like 5.30 at work being like, oh, really sorry, can't make our important and expensive dinner plans that you made this evening. Check you later. I tell you what is, and you know. his thing of making her guest movie soundtracks, that's going to get boring really, really quickly. But in his defence, he does write her theme tune, which is beautiful. Mm, yeah. Jack Black apologists. The room is full of them. <laughs> um, what do we think about Graham and 
Cameron Diaz's character. What's her bloody name? Amanda. Amanda. Why can I never remember Amanda. that her name is Amanda? Amanda it's just such a because it's name. a terrible, terrible name for a character played by Cameron Diaz. She does not look like an Amanda. Anyway, anyway, so Amanda and Graham. How do we feel about them? Do we do we believe them as a couple? I did read a couple of old reviews of the holiday in preparation for this because. Um, that some of them are brilliantly scathing about it. And the Guardian review, and I couldn't tell you who the journalist is, said the couple's not believable because they are so alike in every facet of being kind of hot actors, actresses at this hinge in their careers <laughs> that it seems almost incestuous. And now I can't unsee it. That's very, that's such a good point. The bit where he goes, we're well to part, you and I. I am an editor in publishing and you edit film trailers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a fantastic line. That's one line. of my favourite lines in the movie. That, and His intonation is all like, we're so different. We're from different worlds. It's like, <laughs> no, you are both privileged white people who edit stuff. <laughs> I think that's your favourite part you of the, the whole same. movie, isn't it, Caroline? It is. It's absolutely my favourite part of the whole thing. Um, for me... I, again, I'm not sure I completely believe that they will spend the rest of their lives together after this Mm-mm. movie is over. And I, I also find the Graham character so thinly drawn mm. because the whole, the, basically, the Jude Law Graham character, his whole character is father. And at the beginning, it's seeming playboy, then revealed single father. And he's so kind of like cagey about mentioning that he has children or introducing Cameron Diaz to his Amanda to his children and then as soon as she finds out about the children he's like come play in my living room meet them bond with them be their new mother for two weeks before you fly back to the US and like that that's character switch for me it's just so sudden and kind of absurd that I'm then like well hang on what is this relationship really because if you're if you're going to be so key like I don't know like if you're going to introduce your kids to someone shouldn't you be pretty sure so I totally agree that it, it, his character is really really thin and um if he hasn't had the kind of emotional maturity to deal with like his situation before he met Amanda by just going out and getting drunk all the time mm he's probably not going to have the emotional maturity to deal with a woman potentially giving up her or him having to give up their like careers for each other and mm. making that work. Um, but that, that leads on to one of the other things that watching it last night made me think was the female characters are not very deeply developed, but you do, it is orientated towards them and they do learn certain life lessons about, you know, picking yourself up after a fall and mm. try putting yourself out there and trying something new. And you know, there, there's a lot you can get as a female kind of romantic viewer of, of the movie but I something a discussion with some guy friends the other week actually about sex in the city um really brought home to me how few male romantic role models there are in tv and film mm. um and that kind of either show men in a good light at all or or show them having any kind of emotional character development mm. in a way that you can like draw some basic life lessons from and I'm not sure they really exist in this film that much I mean it's nice seeing Jude Law being the one who's emotionally vulnerable and able to cry. Uh, and as a primary caregiver. A primary caregiver and the one who's able to say, I love you and let's do this because that's normally reversed, although that's a very generalised mm. statement of of mine. But um, yeah, I just still wonder. I think it's better than, than, say, Sex and the City in terms of what it can give to male viewers, but I wonder if it still falls quite short. Well, the whole genre of rom-coms are really geared up towards female viewers, right? And... Nancy Myers, mm-hmm. in particular, 
what she's normally so good at as well is creating films for an older female audience, like films like Something's Gotta Give and It's Complicated. And, you know, maybe to a lesser extent, films like The Intern, what they're so good at is like, as you say, Steph, these characters are slightly older than your usual rom-com pitch. And they're not as old as Meryl Streep or Diane Keaton in Something's Gotta Give. But um, they are, I don't know, maybe for me that what they do offer is something that's not just like a standard 23-year-old, just out, just graduated, trying to make her way in the world of work and love. You know, they 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 do <laughs> offer a little bit a little bit more than that for a female view. But it's true that men in rom-coms do tend to be drawn either as villains or as kind of like perfect romantic partners and not as kind of like someone that you might make compromises with on that journey. They're just quite passive, the two male leads. They like the women arrive in their lives and kind of appear to sort them out (laughs) or like provide a fill a gap that was there. And they don't seem to really do anything to have achieved that themselves. Mm. Do the women both literally fall in love with the first man they see in the new country? <laughs> Apart from their taxi drivers. Yeah. They both have taxi <laughs> drivers. Apart from taxi, taxi drivers, drivers and yeah. things like that. Is that right? Yeah, there's literally, yeah. there's literally, they both have a taxi driver each and then who does, who does Iris meet first? Arthur or? I think it's Jack. He it's, comes to the he house. He on the bus, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he comes to the house because he's friends with Amanda's ex and he's supposed to be mm-hmm. picking up his stuff I think and, is how and they first the meet. winds the magical winds yeah, the are blowing magical <laughs> anything <laughs> can happen <laughs> but, sand, the sand whatever winds yeah that is bizarre Steph you had some thoughts as well about gender and love and friendship in this film yeah it's really interesting you bring up the women being better realized which I completely agree with but I was really struck that the women don't seem to really have female friendships which is something that's normally such a big thing in a rom-com is the chat with the best friend about the guy. So I think Iris talks to one of her colleagues about Jasper and denies still being in love with him when they're at the... Yes, amazing cameo by Sarah Mm. Parrish. I thought about this re-watching, that um, interesting that she was in this movie. Yeah, Yeah, and it's such a funny kind of moment that then never gets revisited for the rest of the film, that she's apparently quite friendly with this colleague. And it made me think of something young adult writers... um, have observed to me which is that if you want to write a imperiled teen drama today you have to either set it in a fantasy world or in the past or get them marooned on an island or something because mobile phones completely undermine the genre Mm. (laughs) and it's kind of similar in in this film I think that you have to almost maroon both of these women with no other women around so that they can have all these dramatic conversations about the nature of love with the men in their lives I mean I don't know if Um, Amanda is meant to have any women friends Iris doesn't really seem Mm. to either maybe she did and they all disappeared because I got so sick of hearing about this asshole Jasper but (laughs) Amanda's supposed to be so isolated because she's such a workaholic and she can't let anyone in and she can't cry right Mm. so she she does seems to have no one like apart from her two editors who sit in her house <laughs> um john krasinski and Catherine hart and that's it <laughs> and i guess for the conceit they all have to be isolated otherwise why are they all so free and available over, over the christmas, christmas holiday period, period? why have yeah. they got no one to to be with yeah totally but i think you're right it's missing what is such a common rom-com trope which is the moment where the girls kind of like decamp somewhere with their friends and analyze what's going on and ask for advice and you know, mm. get gassed up, ready to go on the next date. And there's none of that. And so, and it also obviously enables things like Cameron Diaz not to realize that Jude Law is Iris's brother. And, you know, all of these, it enables all yeah. these little 
plot points. It's funny that you mentioned mobile phones because I think the way that Graham talks to his two, like his seven-year-old and his 10-year-old on the phone in this ambiguous way that he could be talking to like a girlfriend or a mate down the pub on his phone. It's just so bizarre. Like, Why are his two daughters saved under separate names on his phone? I know. How and why, and why when his children call him on the phones that he bought them for emergencies only is he just like oh hi i'll call you back <laughs> like, well, you're like what's the emergency seven-year-old are you dead it's just so weird and that, like yeah it's bizarre he's just like okay i'll call you back later then bye one, one quick extra thought on the female friend thing i wonder almost if the houses because yeah they don't interact directly um the mm-hmm. two female leads but their houses almost stand in for their personalities because mm. they're so stylized. And you almost feel like in your normal rom-com, friends who are very different lend each other qualities yeah. that improve what the other one is la- is low on. And their houses almost do that a little bit for them as well. Like Kate's make, um, I'm not, what's Iris. Iris's makes Amanda's more kind of cozy, cozy. and lends her that warmth and... Amanda, Amanda gives, gives her glamour gumption, and, and gumption, the key yeah, word and, <laughs> and confidence. Definitely. I definitely think there's an element of that. And it's interesting as well because the the Atlantic creates both this opportunity and these obstacles in this film. One of the obstacles being that, that Amanda and Iris never really speak apart from in that instant messaging chat at the beginning and then a sort of final glimpse of them interacting at the end. And, you know, you could imagine they would be able to give each other lots of advice on this situation and lots of kind of hand-holding through, through each other's, especially not mm. least because they both know each other's prospective partners fairly well and would be able to give advice. But they they don't, which is obviously a blessing and a curse for the film because we I do think sometimes it lacks scenes like that, but obviously it enables a lot of the action to happen. And the other obviously major obstacle that The Atlantic proposes is... <laughs> there's a lack of a happy ending in this movie because of it because we don't know if these characters are going to relocate their lives in order to be with their partners or their new their new partners do you guys think what would you suggest would be the resolution post credit role who's moving where and when who's giving up their career how's it going to work or is it just not going to work <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fixated on the house thing now but it's also just occurred to me that the two main homes you see are, are created very much um, by the women you don't see Jack Black's home and Jude Law's home w- with his kids feels very much like it was a product of his former marriage like it's family home feels very feminine mm-hmm. so these are homes that are defined by the women the home is it's like very traditional but the home is the women's space in this movie so maybe they and by by on that principle alone they would all have to live with in the woman's home because mm. in the houses yeah. that we know yeah so the men are the yeah. ones moving yeah i i can see that logic yeah steph i'm now just thinking about arthur's amazing eames chair i've got completely distracted arthur's house is brilliant <laughs> yeah maybe well. he'll die and one of them can one of them can move in into yeah, the totally. level. yeah they could live next door yeah there we go. We've solved it. Um, yeah, Jude Law will have to pull his kids out of school, obviously. But I think the they're girls young. will like living in LA. Yeah, yeah they're pretty young. So, so you think you think the the book publisher's going to up sticks to LA with Amanda? I mean, she's the higher earner. Let's be pragmatic. Yeah, she here. can't give up her. She can't. She can't move her career to another coast or another continent. No, she's the house. She's there. chilled out, but she's not. So that what out, is, is Iris going to? 
going to stay. She's in... No, Iris and Jack are going to move into the scriptwriter's house next door. So everyone's camp- camping out to Hollywood. Yeah, because it's a film about the movies. There we go. That's, also, that, that's the happy ending. <laughs> <But> also <laughs> Brexit. Also Brexit. <laughs> um, I mean, this film did come out in like 2006 or something, didn't it? But... <laughs> Brilliant foreshadowing. <laughs> okay, well, that's great, guys. Thank you so much. So now we're joined by Nick Hilton, who is, what's your official title, Nick? Uh, God, do you want my, do you want a serious answer now? Or yeah, do you want I want me to a just serious say, like, title. I'm officially, your, um, I guess I run a, run a podca- little podcast company, big Nancy Myers fan. I run sort of conferences about pop culture and yeah, that's it. Can we just say, importantly, you didn't say that you co-parent a dog with Anna? We, yeah, he, well, he's right here in the room. I yeah, there it was is actually a dog in obvious. the studio that people won't be able to hear. Tupsy? Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't bark. So he doesn't want we to can't, say We can't make him make noise. But yeah, Nick is also my boyfriend. The occasionally referred to boyfriend through the years yeah. of, seriously. <laughs> and as it's the last seriously ever... And Nick has been a long-time supporter and fan of the show. <laughs> Big fan. Words in my mouth, but yeah. <laughs> um, we thought it'd be fun to get him on. So actually, I would say that you're an extreme Nancy Myers enthusiast. You're probably the biggest Nancy Myers fan I know, which is unusual for a bloke. Is it? Are they very gendered films? I think they're actually... Well, we just had a little bit of a, of a chat about this in our last section on love and on the rom-com as a slightly gendered genre in the first place. Right, right. Well, and not every Nancy Myers film is a, a rom-com, I should add. The Parent Trap isn't, The Intern isn't. Those are still films that I would imagine skew very female. I would say they skew the age binary is probably the bigger one for Nancy Myers films rather than gender binary. But I actually have no idea. What would idea. you say? That they're skewed at a slightly older audience? Yeah, it's sort of grey pound, yeah. isn't it? Um, the grey pound anyway we're fast escaping the structure of this segment the first thing we're (laughs) going to ask you Nick is do you think The Holiday is a good movie or a bad movie I think The Holiday is a really good movie wow and I and I wasn't sure because it's been a while since I've watched I think this when I watched it this morning it was the third time I've watched it ever I first saw it on like a Christmas Eve family cinema outing and you know I was probably like I don't know when it came out 2006 so I guess I was can I just quickly do some maths in my head? What does that make me, Anna? I don't so, know. I, I must have been about math. 13. So <laughs> I was a 13-year-old boy, Christmas Eve, with my mum and my sister. Um, and I didn't love it. And then I've seen it again, and, and it's sort of had the, the Nancy Myers effect on me. And so this morning, I was willing to kind of sit there and play actual proper jury on it. And I think it's really good. I think it really holds together. I thought going in, the bit in the UK works, but the bit in America doesn't work. That was my sort of f- lingering feeling I had from previous viewings. Um, and I think that's completely wrong. I think they both work really nicely. There's a really nice balance to it. Would you say it justifies its runtime of two and a half hours? Neither myself nor Tub. Well, Tub slept through a lot of it, but uh, we, I, I found it very breezy. And yeah, no, I, I, I'm a pretty committed believer in 90 minutes is long enough for any film. I often joke that I would like to walk out of films in 90 minutes just to encourage people not to go any longer. But that could have been another hour, hour and a half, and I would have another hour it. and a half, another hour and a half. It could have been you would four, have four hours of it. I would have watched a TV show based on those characters and settings. Yeah. Well, there we go. What do you think of the hypothesis that uh, Simran suggested earlier in the show that the Arthur Iris storyline you could just drop that and the film would still work? I think it would still work, which is testament to the film. Uh, but <laughs> it works even better with the Arthur Iris. I love that segment. You know, Eli Valak was ninety when they were filming that. Obviously, he died a few years ago. 
but he was like a proper old man. He do, he's so good at being a proper old man. We were watching Little Miss Sunshine the other night. Sorry, mm. this is very giving you a real insight into our domestic life. Um, we were watching Little Miss Sunshine and it has Alan Arkin as the granddad who drops mm-hmm. dead. And I, at a certain point, I was like, Alan Arkin's probably what, was in his early 70s, you know, mid 70s during yeah. that film. He's yeah. about the same age as my dad. And he didn't, he didn't feel like a proper old man in the way that Eli Alex feels like a proper <laughs> old man. A actual like Hollywood legend playing a Hollywood mm-hmm. legend. I would defend that segment to the death. Because the Arthur bit is sort of 40 minutes of quite a long film that doesn't necessarily directly influence like the actual rom-com. But every Nancy Myers film has to have this choric role, this choric presence. You know, in its complicated, you have the, you know, the Goldie Horn, Rita Wilson, mm. Shirley MacLaine sort of conference of women. And here the, the choric coven. role, the, the coven, yeah, is the, the, this, here the role is played by these men, these old kind of Jewish Hollywood legends. And they do function, they do have a function within the romantic plot, which is to bring Miles in to show Miles is the way he ingratiates himself both as a friend and then later as a romantic interest. I think, you know, I don't think it is 40 minutes, uh, but, <laughs> but I would have watched, I would watch a whole film about, about Kate Winslet, beloved, you know, growing to love a... I agree with you, actually. I think deal. it is one of the stronger parts of the film. Yeah. And it's just a nice insight into both of those characters. But moving on, we're going to talk about the home in this section of the podcast, because I mean, anyone who knows anything about Nancy Myers um, will know that the sets are a really key part Mm, of Nancy Myers movies. And she's known for these kind of very lavish, very stylish, I would say very all-American homes. The kind of homes that have enormous kitchens and bathrooms with his and hers sinks. And the homes become very important in this film. We were just talking on the last segment with India about love, about how those two homes kind of have to stand in for the characters that live in them and built them because the Amanda and Iris characters don't really hang out. So their homes kind of enable those relationships to develop a bit, even when they're not in the same room as each other. So first, I kind of want to know your thoughts on Nancy Meyer's homes in general, Nick, because you are you are a connoisseur of a Nancy Meyer's set, I'd say. Yes. Well, I think the important thing about a Nancy Meyer's home is that it should both speak to like affluence and a very urban form of affluence without being urban. So mm. all her previous films, and I'm exempting The Intern to an extent because The Intern is actually a somewhat tonally different film from Something's Gotta Give, It's Complicated, What Women Want. They're set in places like the Hamptons, like Ojai and It's Complicated. Sort of the, this idea of rurality, but tempered by a very close proximity and close relationship with like the urban sophistication. And so I think it was quite telling that I think to British eyes, the uh, the cottage that Kate Winslet lives in, which Kate Cameron Diaz moves to, feels like very rural. And there's this sequence at the beginning where the taxi driver won't take her down the pathway because yeah. you know apparently she can't they, they can't get close enough to it, and she lugs her her enormous suitcase uh, down the down there, and it, and it and it presents itself as though it's something you know, really kind of far from civilization. And that's actually one of the most expensive towns sheer in Surrey. It's about 45 minute train journey from London. It's very much like part of the bougie commute, like extended commuter uh, experience. So it's that ability to make somewhere seem both idyllic and countryside and by the sea or out in the, out in the hills in California and also like very sophisticated. And, and that's why it was a very obvious choice, the, you know, Surrey Hills for... Um, for a Nancy Myers film. I think it's interesting as well because the two houses are obviously meant to speak to the two 
um, women's characters in that the Amanda Cameron Diaz house is almost doesn't look particularly lived in. It's so glossy and like, you know, the amazing DVD collection and the TV yeah. that pops out of the wall. And it's it's like extremely high functioning and glossy. Uh, but it's not it's not that homely, I'd say, compared to most Nancy Myers homes, which whilst having that veneer of gloss do tend to have this like real level of coziness, don't they? Whereas the other house seems much more lived in it's deliberately like kind of overly small. It's actually a little bit too small, isn't it? And like the so, so things like the bath are too small for Amanda, and they kind of I don't know. It makes a statement about their two personalities as well. Someone who's a little bit more unassuming, and someone who's much more kind of I don't know up uptight and wants to be very well presented. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the narrative is setting up from the beginning is this idea of, you know, Amanda has built a studio in her home so that she can hide John Krasinski and Catherine Hahn in cupboards. <laughs> and they just live, they seem to just live in her house. And it's, you know, her house is the, the separation of work and life there is is non-existent. You've got all these movies and the big stereo, you know, the stereo sound system or whatever yeah. it is, video system. And yeah. she looks at it and it's like, what on earth is that? Because it's, you know, it's it doesn't look like a home. It looks like a workspace. Um, and I and I do think that Nancy Meyer's homes generally are more utilitarian than people give them credit for. I think that like it's complicated. The home space looks like it resembles a bakery in the sense mm. that she runs a bakery, and you know, it revolves quite around practical. the kitchen. It revolves it? around the kitchen. The whole premise of the film also revol- revolves around the kitchen because they're building a new one. They're building a new one, but also like the, it's the social space. The family meet at the fridge. They take things. You know, then there are sequences like where she changes the water on the water cooler, which feel very like practical, very hands-on in a way that mm. I think when you talk about Nancy Myers films as being very lavish and ostentatious, um, you sort of miss the point. And the same with the intern, you know, the, the the kitchen meeting space is where Ben comes in every day to, you know, have coffee with the husband, where she sorts out the packages from her work and stuff like that. So the functionality of the spaces is quite, you know, the, 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 the Cameron Diaz home is much more classic Nancy Myers home in that sense. And it's actually the Kate Winslet home that's doing something a bit different in terms of um, creating this new environment based on like this, on a, on a very specific idea of affluent Britishness, twee Britishness. Yeah. Do you think the the houses are meant to also basically symbolise the two different countries and the two different coasts, or not coasts, but continents, the two like those two national identities? Yeah. I mean, the film is pr- profoundly about like that transatlantic culture swapping you know even in the very name the holiday is a pun on the double meaning of the word holiday in the us that means christmas in the uk that means someone going on a vacation so you know we, we're they're playing with the very idea of um britishness and american culture clashing here in the title mm. and, I, and i think you know throughout kate winslet is essentially playing bridget jones um oh that's that- a take we no one said that yet. yeah we've not said that before but yeah i guess in a way she is you know the like all by myself era bridget jones right yeah with the, um, with the mr bright side singing yeah well that's actually that's 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 Cameron amanda Diaz that does, does that, that. But, oh sorry yeah. yeah um but but I, either way you know she's she sort of bridget jones by way of the sort of diane keaton character that manifests yeah. itself in something's got to give and you know the helen hunt character in what women want and all, all of these you know the nancy myers school of rom-com actually gave a lot to the Bridget Jones character, I would say, even to that Kate Winslet role, which is not a particularly well-defined as Kate Winslet roles go. Uh, 
is a sort of takes the sort of tropes of Bridget Jones and, you know, takes brings them into the Nancy Myers format. The, uh, the Amanda heroine is a much more classic, again, is a much more classic Nancy Myers heroine mm. than, than the Kate Winslet Iris. And how do you feel about some of the other sets in this movie? We, we get a glimpse of um, Arthur's home. Um, we've already mentioned his kind of nice Eames chair and his yeah. kind of mid-century modern feel that he's got. And we also get a glimpse of um, Graham's family home, which is kind of a more traditional, but also quite lavish Yeah, home. Graham's home is absolutely stunning. Like you can't, I just, the market value of that for, um, is it a book editor or something? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah on, a, on one income as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe his wife was very wealthy. Uh, Simran made the point when we were discussing work that you can only this film only works if you assume that they both, or at least certainly the Graham and Kay Winslet characters, clearly have a considerable amount of family money. Yeah, and I think that's why you know you would expect Kay Winslet and Jude Law, if they're siblings, to not come from you know mm-hmm. the gutter. <laughs> well, just looking at them. <laughs> yeah, they look they've, got, they've got the ruddy sheen of the aristocracy about them. <laughs> they do, they do. But um, the the American houses, I think, are actually maybe more interesting to me because, as a Nancy Myers aficionado, because the interiors are very the interiors are very classic Nancy Myers, and both the there's a wonderful, almost chilling shot of uh, at the Hanukkah party where the camera sort of swings around. You see all these people like yeah. exchanging stories, and mm. the camera swings around. In the background, you just see a maid cleaning a glass, yeah. and it's like completely yeah. uncommented on the fact that you, they've got this sort of. It's the only time you see the help, isn't it? Even and though it feels very un- remarkably there. unselfconscious. I thought, yeah. you know, no one was had to be like apologize and have like a nice interaction nice, you know we're just cool like you yeah um, where the maid sort of says it brings me so much joy to even be near you yeah, or something yeah. like that to excuse <laughs> yeah, yeah. the dynamic um but the there's the interiors of those houses are very classically Nazi Myers and just to uh, I plug something I did I, I interviewed Zoe Kazan a, a few weeks ago for another podcast and she talked about Nancy Myers as being um, a director who likes to touch everything who can't have anything on her sets in her houses that she has Zoe touched. Kazan was in It's Complicated right? Yeah yeah and she compares her to Bresson and, and those sets in, inside look like that but I'd also get the sense that um, Nancy Myers doesn't have any love for Los Angeles as a exterior location so usually mm. you get these lots of rural walks and you get gardens and people like feel that you know in this one the only exterior you get is her leaning out her balcony to throw things at her cheating yeah boy, that's the one exterior shot you're right and you also get arthur saying you know look I, I got lost because they keep tearing down these houses they weren't very good anyway but the whole neighborhoods are changing so you've got this sort of tension in the buildings of whether they're these new ugly sort of uh, you know, Hollywood mansions or whether they're the old ones, which weren't very good either. And really the, the space is pushed inwards, ever inwards. In the Although movie. there is that, of course, one ridiculous sequence when Kate Winslet first arrives in the US and she's kind of hanging like a dog with her head out of the side of the taxi. <laughs> and there she goes past a field of horses and she goes, wow, look at the horses. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't remember that. Kate Winslet in the yeah. US. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, she's yeah. just like pointing at things and going, wow. And you're like, okay. And the there's water. your classic like newcomer in LA staring at palm trees yeah. from a moving car right. but with wild horses I can't remember now you're pu- you're pushing me on it and I'm, I'm full of self-doubt <laughs> okay. but um I mean we me and Nick often have this argument about whether the holiday not the holiday the um whether home again is could be considered a Nancy Myers movie which is a film yeah, made by I Nancy Myers's daughter that. which does have mm. a lot of love for Californian landscapes no I, I don't, I'm not I'm not disputing that she has a lot of love for Californian landscapes but home again like it's complicated to set out somewhere in Ojai Napa I don't know where it is but it's in the sort of the Californian hills the sort of wine country it's rather than LA, in LA the city yeah you know that this, this one is set in Hollywood they live they live somewhere in Beverly yeah. Hills or whatever yeah um 
and you know that and i think that there's that, that's why you don't get that sense of the outdoor space and that's something that you kind of is de- is re- reconfigured in in the uk where you know Cameron Diaz, twice you see Cameron Diaz making that journey up this apparently uninhabitable Surrey road. Mm. Um, you know, first time with luggage, the second time in heels and, you know. And there's there's also that scene, isn't there, where she and Jude Law like go to some stately home and sort of snog in the hedges and stuff. So there is a sense yeah. of stuff happening outside. Yeah, that that's a... I thought that was briefly his house because his house is so large. That, <laughs> you know, her cottage is also beautiful. You know, it's lingered. Mm. The exterior of that is lingered it's upon stunning. so, like, you know, um, pornographically in a way that the the exterior of the of Cameron Diaz's home is never is never. You know, it sort of sinks amongst the bushes in the in in the way that like that focus on extreme privacy that I think a lot of LA houses do. The mm. big high bushes, the trees covering up, whereas. You know the 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 camera uh, the Kate Winslet cottage kind of sticks out like a sort of tombstone and uh, and she uh, when 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 Cameron Diaz arrives she actually looks at the tombstones across and she's like oh my god it looks so beautiful it's like this snowy churchyard and then she goes to this house and it's sort of the same, the same sort of upright protruding from the ground Anna's looking at me like I'm crazy no I'm not I think the dog just farted that's all my expression <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. Okay, so Simran, we want to ask you, what is the most absurd, the silliest moment in the holiday for you? I have two. Two are just wonderfully ridiculous. Okay, the first one is when Cameron Diaz is dancing and singing to Mr. Brightside, the Killers track from 2004, I think. That is incredible, Um, that moment. By 2006, it's already dated. Um, <laughs> she's singing it so badly. It actually makes me physically cringe to watch it. It's so embarrassing. I can't even find it funny or endearing. Um, but that that for me is is a very important part of the film. And also Jude Law's iconic character, Mr. Mr. Napkinhead. Napkinhead. There is a moment when Jude Law says, I am daddy. But what he means <laughs> is I am zaddy. He is so ridiculously attractive in this film. Yeah. And uh, the the scene of him putting on a napkin underneath his glasses and then putting a spoon in his mouth and smoking it like a cigarette for these two little girls is just the greatest thing I've ever seen, to yeah. be honest. That is a question that I actually had when I watched The Holiday last year was, how is Jude Law at his most attractive in this film as Mr. Napkinhead? <laughs> like he's got a sheet over his head and somehow that is... That is the pinnacle of his attractiveness in this film for me. He's just, you know, he's got the whole hot dad thing down to a T. He has. Well, Shout thank out you. to you, Jude Law. <laughs> so, Steph, what is the most absurd moment in the holiday for you? Apart from literally every time Cameron Diaz has to say the name Graham. Yeah, yeah um, that's, that's a good one. I think it has to be when the Telegraph editor says... We're going to work with a skeleton staff, so we hope you all enjoy the holidays rather than Christmas, as if a senior Telegraph editor has ever called it the holidays rather than Christmas. That's so true. (laughs) Very good point. Um, And India? Oh, mine is when Cameron Diaz changes her mind about Jude Law and turns around the car and is like, no, 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 don't drive me all the way. I'll run through <laughs> on like icy country road in I was I was sort of thinking what what shoes is she wearing and then they do a wide shot and she is in stilettos yeah. I mean that is it's <laughs> not happening <laughs> two incredibly absurd moments so Nick 
What is the silliest bit of the holiday? Well, I was going to say the Mr. Brightside moment, but I gather it's already been taken, which I think is is, is very odd because it's become a sort of meme about like lads in the club. Um, but uh, <laughs> the bit that I had completely forgotten about is the bit where they're in the video rental store and, you know, he's Miles is doing the sort of various soundtracks and he starts to talk about the original music for The Graduate. And then the camera pans and you see sort of Dustin Hoffman at the video store checking out his own video and he's like shakes his head and he's like can't get away from the fans or something something quite rather self-aggrandizing given that Mars is not even talking to him uh, it's just one of those moments where you're sort of like that is a wildly underused celebrity cameo yes why did they just get him to do that like, at the very least have him interact with Dustin Hoffman but uh instead it's you know but it just shows you know how, the extent to which uh, Nancy Myers is is one of the great American directors it she is can, bizarre. She can call upon Dustin Hoffman whenever she wants. Well, what, is he, what is Dustin Hoffman doing in Blockbuster on Christmas Eve? That's my question. <laughs> yes, he doesn't have enough films at home. It's very, very odd. What's anyone doing in a Blockbuster in 2006? It's just absolutely bizarre. That was peak Blockbuster years. <laughs> really? It was a <laughs> social hub. I People it. used to just hang out at the just Blockbuster. Just hanging out at the Blockbuster. It's older men, mainly. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nick. It's, it's nice my to pleasure. have you on. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seriously. I've been Anna Leskovich. And I've been Caroline Crampton. And this is the final episode of Seriously. And we just have to again say such a huge thank you to everyone who has ever listened to Seriously. To those of you who've listened semi-religiously. My God, we couldn't we couldn't have possibly hoped for a better audience, could we, Caroline? No, you've all been amazing. And all of your messages and emails since we said that we were finishing have all been really lovely as well. And we're not going anywhere. We're still going to be around and about writing on the internet. We'll have other audio projects and stuff. So you can find links to those below. And yeah, we'll we'll talk to you again. All the love. I have, I have so much love. I sort of don't want to say goodbye, but... Uh goodbye and we've loved you and it's just been such a great experience for both of us yeah bye hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.